Welcome everybody to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're the hosts of the Book Talk. We're very excited uh, to have with us today Finus Dunaway, who's Professor of History at Trent University in Canada. And he's going to be presenting his book, Defending the Arctic Refuge, A Photographer, An Indigenous Nation, and a Fight for Environmental Justice which came out with the University of North Carolina Press this year, 2021. So we'll give it over to you, Finus. Great, thank you so much, Dolly uh, and Finn Arn, for inviting me to speak and for all you do in organizing this terrific series. Uh, I'm in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, uh, which is on the traditional territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabeg. I teach courses at Trent University in history media studies and environmental studies. And I'm so excited that you're all here. Thank you for joining. Uh, my plan is to talk for about 20 minutes or so to give us a lot of time for questions and discussion. And what I mainly want to do is share with you the research journey uh, that led to this book and then briefly highlight a few of the larger themes. Um, I'll go ahead and say at the outset that this is not the book I set out to write. Uh, it, it emerged from years of research in libraries and archives and other places, but also from listening and learning, uh, from talking with indigenous leaders, scientists, environmental activists, and many others across the continent who have been involved in this struggle. And these are people, I think, who um, not only shared their stories and knowledge with me, but helped me see this issue differently, uh, and indeed helped me rethink the purpose of writing history. Uh, so I'm very grateful to all of them. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. We'll be looking at a lot of images along the way here today. So my interest in the Arctic began in 2005. It was initially sparked by this photograph. Uh, I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I was in Seattle visiting family uh, and doing some research at the University of Washington. And as I was about to leave the library one afternoon, this picture literally stopped me dead in my tracks. And I, I don't think that's, that's very rarely happened in my life, even as a scholar of history and photography, history and uh, visual culture. I think it was the colors that drew me in. Uh, you see the orange land, the blue luminescent waters alternating, leading to the sky beyond. As you look more closely, you see those white birds. And I think that's what really struck me because they're the true subject of the photograph. Those are flocks of snow geese that seem to coalesce as waves and undulations rippling and flowing toward the horizon of the Beaufort Sea, the Arctic Ocean beyond. This photograph appeared on a poster advertising a show about the Arctic refuge that was on display at the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture at the University of Washington at the time. This is a faded version of that poster which now hangs on my office wall. You can see it uh, maybe above my head here. This exhibition featured photographs by someone I'd never heard of before, Shubankar Banerjee. So I rushed back to a library computer, I did a quick Google search, and I learned that his photos had originally been exhibited two years earlier, that was 2003, at the Smithsonian Institution in DC, where they triggered a major controversy. This was during the George W. Bush administration, when there was an aggressive push to drill in the Arctic refuge. So I decided to go over to the show across campus, and I found myself mesmerized by the images. Uh, including this one of pregnant caribou migrating over the frozen Colleen River, headed toward their calving grounds on the Arctic Refuge coastal plain. I was interested in the artistry of the show, but also by the ways in which Banerjee depicted the Arctic Refuge, not as 
isolated and remote, but is interconnected with indigenous communities, including this photograph of Charlie Sweeney taken at his hunting camp just outside of Arctic Village, Alaska. I ended up going back to this show a couple more times before I left Seattle, and I later wrote a review essay about it. But I didn't think I would ever write about the Arctic again. I spent much of the decade writing, next decade writing this book, Seeing Green, which focuses on iconic images of environmentalism. But something led me back to the Arctic. When I finished this book, I knew I wanted to approach history from a different scale, maybe by writing the history of a particular place. And that's what led me to start doing some more reading about the Arctic Refuge. But I had no idea what path I would eventually take with this project. Now, before diving into the story I, I tell in the book, I just want to show a map to help everyone, uh, help us all get oriented. So this is a map that was created by the Gwich'in Steering Committee, which is an advocacy group led by Gwich'in in Canada and Alaska. Now, at first glance, this might look like any other map. You see a dotted line running down the middle to show the boundary between Canada and the United States. But arbitrary political boundaries are this map's least important feature, as I'll explain. So what you're looking at here is a portion of Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. And the gray shaded area on the Alaska side of the map is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. This area was originally set aside in 1960 and then doubled in size 20 years later. The 1980 law gave permanent wilderness protection to large uh, areas of the Arctic Refuge, but it left the coastal plain, that's the red shaded area at the top of the refuge map, in legislative limbo, meaning that its fate would eventually be decided by the US Congress, which had the power to either grant wilderness protection or allow oil development there. So when you hear about the Arctic Refuge debate, what, you're, what people are really talking about is that section of land, 1.5 million acres along the Beaufort Sea, the Arctic Ocean. So since that time, oil companies, the state of Alaska, powerful politicians have all pushed to drill in the refuge, while environmental and indigenous advocates have struggled to protect this ecosystem from fossil fuel development. And this has been going on for decades, this struggle. Uh, speaking of fossil fuel development, I should point out one more thing here uh, on the, the Alaska side. What you're looking at to the left of the Arctic Refuge, all those dark red dots, uh, that indicates the Prudhoe Bay oil fields. But what I really want to direct your attention to is those two curvy lines that loop around much of the area of the map, because they tell this map's true story. The darker line shows you the transboundary range of the porcupine caribou herd. Uh, this herd currently numbers over 200,000 caribou, and they have their wintering range in the mountains and boreal forests of Canada and Alaska, and they migrate every spring to the Arctic coastal plain to have their young. It's not just caribou uh, that rely on this area. Many other wildlife species uh, do as well, such as polar bears that have denning sites there, as well as about 200 species of birds that migrate from across North America and around the world. This is a buff-breasted sandpiper uh, that migrates from Argentina to the Arctic Refuge. For this reason, we can think of this area as a biological nursery of transnational and global significance. 
But I think what's most important about this map is that it shows the striking overlap between the range of the porcupine herd, again, that's the darker curvy line, and the homeland of the Gwich'in, which is indicated by the lighter line. Um, as you can see there, these two lines repeatedly intersect one another. They almost seem to mirror one another as you look at the map, showing the profound interconnections between indigenous communities and the caribou. So for the Gwich'in, the fight against Arctic drilling is a struggle infused with existential meaning to hold on to their culture, protect their food security, maintain their relations of responsibility with caribou and the land. Before leaving the map, I just want to point out one more thing on the, on the Canadian side. You see bordering the Arctic Refuge, two national parks, Avavik and Vuntut National Parks. Both of these were created out of indigenous lands claims agreements uh, showing, uh, and they allowed for uh, indigenous use of the parks uh, for subsistence, hunting, trapping, other traditional uses. Uh, and these are the first parks created out of lands claims agreement. So you can see uh, how we can think about this as an interconnected transnational space that has been protected in part uh, because of the leadership and advocacy of indigenous peoples. Now that we're oriented to the region, uh, I want to continue us along the research journey that led to the book. So early on, I came across a brief article about Lenny Combe. Uh, he was a photographer who traveled around the US presenting an Arctic slideshow. Uh, I thought this was a quirky story and I was intrigued. So I started writing him a letter to see if I could interview him. Uh, that was in August of 2014. I put the note aside for a while do a little more research. Uh, and then before hitting send uh, in October, uh, I Googled his name one more time, just wanted to make sure I had the right email address. And the first link that came up was his obituary. Lenny Combe had died at his home in Todd, North Carolina on September 25th of that year, and he was 74. I was stunned to read the news. And the next day I ended up talking with a friend of his for about an hour. And near the end of our conversation, he offhandedly mentioned that he was giving the eulogy at Lenny's memorial on Saturday. And by the way, he said, if there's any way you can make it down, it would be wonderful to have you here. Now, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know if it'd be appropriate for me to attend because I never met this man, but he understand my concerns and still encouraged me to come. He said, this was not going to be a somber occasion. This was gonna be a celebration of his life. And just before saying goodbye, he insisted to me, Lenny would want you to be there. So I went to his memorial, which was held in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I could see when I walked in that the room was decorated with some of his most treasured possessions. Here you see the two slide projectors he carried with him as he crisscrossed the country. And above the mantle, there was a beaded floral pattern caribou skin vest given to him by indigenous people from the North. Speaking on behalf of the Gwich'in nation, Lucy Beach said that all of our hearts are heavy for our brother, our uncle, our grandpa. She talked about the deep connection Lenny formed with Gwich'in communities. And she praised his photographs of her people. She was one of approximately 50 Gwich'in representatives who traveled with him on slideshow tours over the years. 
and she talked about her experiences on the road with him. He let us be our own spokespeople. He never told us what to say. And then she announced, if it wasn't for Lenny, I really think there would be drilling in the Arctic Refuge right now. At the potluck dinner that followed this, the service, several people repeated this claim to me. Lenny and his last great wilderness slideshow prevented oil drilling from happening in the Arctic Refuge. I'll confess, I, I felt skeptical at the time. Um, surely they were exaggerating. Uh, who among us has not engaged in hyperbole at a funeral? But the questions gnawed at me. Could his low budget slideshow tours really have made that much of a difference in this high profile environmental debate? Could a traveling slideshow have protected the Arctic Refuge? When I left the memorial, I had no idea that I would spend the next five years chasing down sources, talking with people all across the continent about Lenny's activism. I'd come to North Carolina thinking that I might write a chapter about him, that the slideshow would be like a case study in the history of Arctic refuge activism. For reasons I cannot fully explain, I found myself becoming fascinated and ultimately obsessed with this story. It happened gradually. I was going to archives and libraries, and whenever I would pour through boxes and files looking for materials about the Arctic Refuge, I, if I found a stray document about the last great wilderness, I would feel my heart rate quicken. And this was a paper trail that was very elusive. Uh, a few letters here, the occasional tour itinerary here. For a year, I tried to track down a physical copy of the last great wilderness show. And honestly, I began to despair that I was never going to find it. How was I going to write about a slideshow if I could never actually get my hands on it? Eventually, though, I found a few clues that led me to the person who produced the soundtrack. Um, it turns out the show featured not just slides, uh, but also a soundtrack with music and narration. Not only that, he had recently digitized the show. So when I visited him uh, in California in 2015, he gave me a digital copy of the slideshow that I had been searching for. As I began to piece together this story, I began to see The Last Great Wilderness, a source that could easily be lost to history, as a remarkable experiment in grassroots activism and citizen democracy. We tend to think of images as having the most power when they're seen by the most people singular, iconic pictures like Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother or not NASA's blue marble photograph of the whole earth. These are routinely celebrated for their capacity to crystallize a cultural moment, shape public consciousness, even alter the course of history. But in contrast to these famous images, Linney's photographs never became iconic. The last great wilderness story invites us to consider the impact of images that did not circulate in the mass media, but rather were shared in really unassuming venues, university lecture halls, public libraries, and church basements. So who was Lenny Combe? He was quite a character, as you can tell from this photograph. He was an unlikely activist, a former jazz drummer who later became a photographer. And in 1987, as the Reagan administration was pushing to develop the refuge, Linney journeyed north. And he was going there to take photographs for Audubon magazine. He was hoping to sell pictures to the magazine. That was his reason for going. He went to the refuge 
but it was his time in Gwich'in communities that completely changed his perspective on the issue. From the Gwich'in, he learned that the debate was not simply a question of wilderness versus oil, which is how it was often portrayed in the mainstream media. The drilling plan, they told him, represented a form of colonial violence that threatened their culture and the caribou that migrate to their lands. According to the Gwich'in, fossil fuel development would mean cultural genocide. Returning to his home in California, Linney immediately threw himself into anti-drilling activism. Uh, he helped form a small group that was called the Sonoma Coalition for the Arctic Refuge. Uh, and eventually they put together this slideshow. For the next two decades, so all the way through the W years, Linney traveled around the US giving as many as 200 presentations per year. We can see him here on the road. Uh, this is a slideshow tour through the Midwest with the bumper stickers announcing the purpose of his tour, which was really his true passion. He loaded up the slide projectors and other equipment in two custom-built wooden crates. So this gives you a real sense of the materiality of what we're talking about. Slide projectors, speakers, wires, all kinds of things. Um, and the one of the crates had wheels on it, so you could stack one on top of the other, you know, roll everything to the next show. On these tours, he was often joined by Gwich'in representatives from Canada and Alaska people who traveled from villages north of the Arctic Circle so that they could share their stories with people in the lower 48 and encourage them to take action to protect this place. Now, of course, there's a lot I could say about the show itself, uh, but I will keep this very brief. I have created a, a website uh, that includes a digitized version of the full show, so you can watch it there sometime if you're interested. Now, I know what you're, you're probably thinking here. Uh, this is a slideshow uh, produced by amateur activists in Sonoma, California in 1988. How bad is it? I'll admit that my expectations were not exactly high the first time I watched it. I, I thought the show would present the refuge in very simple terms as a faraway space disconnected from systemic environmental issues. Despite its title, though, the show moves beyond traditional framings of wilderness. Much to my surprise, it offers a complex portrait of the region and even fashions an alternative vision of environmentalism. The show runs for about 30 minutes. Uh, together, the slides and narration layer a, a remarkable range of issues. It emphasizes wilderness and wildlife values, but it also discusses fossil fuel dependency, global warming, and the need to transition to a more sustainable energy system. These are photos from Prudhoe Bay that were included in the show, taken by Pamela A. Miller. Finally, the show turns to Gwich'in country and reframes the refuge struggle as a fight for indigenous rights and environmental justice. And this segment of the show features photographs that Linney had taken along with interview clips he'd done uh, so that the voices and testimony of the Gwich'in could be heard by grassroots audiences. And I think it's really important to stress here that he did not come to Gwich'in lands as a salvage ethnographer. Uh, he was not there to document a culture that he believed doomed to extinction. He was invited uh, by Norma Cassie and other leaders to visit their communities. He wanted to connect 
with the indigenous peoples and grasp our stories, Norma explained to me. He went direct, quite directly into our camps. He lived with us on the land. He ate caribou with us. He helped us make dry meat. Uh, and this is a photo taken from Norma's family's hunting camp in Crow Flats, uh, north of Old Crow, Yukon. That's Lenny's uh, little recreational tent uh, off to the side. And Norma said that he embraced our indigenous knowledge as much as he could. So he was viewed as a friend and an ally. Leaders believe that his photos would aid in their struggle to protect the caribou calving grounds. These photos were made with the cooperation of indigenous communities, and they would go on to play an active role in helping the Gwich'in fight for a future of their own. So Linny and The Last Great Wilderness Show provide the book's main narrative thread, but I also found that the show offered a portal into larger themes. So in the book, I've woven uh, longer histories of indigenous resistance to colonial mega projects in Alaska and Canada, uh, stories of government suppression of science, that's a recurring theme uh, all the way down to the present, and analysis of close votes of really tense moments and of changing political dynamics uh, in Washington, DC. And along the way, I also look at other image makers, uh, pictures that became tools of public outreach, uh, the documentary film Being Caribou, uh, and photographs by Shubankar Banerjee. So I want to close now uh, just very quickly by highlighting a few larger themes that I hope might be of interest to scholars and, and other readers of this book. I tried to write this book differently than I've done before. I would say, for example, in Seeing Green, I would call that an argument-driven book. Um, I tell stories about images, but I use those stories primarily to develop the book's larger analytical claims. Um, here, I tried to reverse that relationship. So to make it a story-driven book with the larger themes and arguments subsumed to the, the flow of the narrative. Um, one major issue I address, of course, is visual culture, and especially the importance of studying non-iconic images. An idea that underlies a lot of my writing is that images exert agency in the world that they are vibrant text, that they're infused with the power to shape history. To understand the impact of this show, as well as other Arctic images I write about, I offer close visual analysis, but I also look beyond the frame uh, to consider the relationships that the slideshow and other images helped build. Relationships that stretch from Capitol Hill to north of the Arctic Circle to cities and towns all across the lower 48. And I explain how these relationships allowed the slideshow to have agency in the world. Refuge defenders knew from the start that they were up against some deep pocketed adversaries. So they turned to what I describe in the book as grassroots visual culture. And I came across a phrase that I really think encapsulates the, the political vision underlying this movement. Some activists called their approach the trickle-up theory of politics, and I think that's such an evocative phrase. According to this idea, they were trying to bring local grassroots attention to the Arctic refuge in communities, many of which were far away from the Arctic. And in turn, they believed that that media coverage and citizen concern would trickle up 
to national media outlets and policymakers in DC. So they're trying to influence federal policy, but they ultimately believe that the true power resided outside the beltway. So this is a way of thinking about environmentalism uh, and the power that comes from grassroots action and from looking at visual culture from below. Another important strand is the making of diverse alliances. If this fight had remained narrowly focused on wilderness versus oil, it is almost certain that refuge defenders would have lost long ago. And in particular, it's the leadership and the advocacy of the Gwich'in that widened support for refuge protection, encouraging many other groups to become involved in this cause. And it's really important to stress here that Gwich'in leaders made the decision to ally with environmentalists, but to do so on their own terms. Uh, Sarah James, now a Gwich'in elder said, we're not fighting because that place looks beautiful. We're fighting because our way of life depends on the land. In order for us to take care of us, for it to take care of us, we have to take care of the land in return. And so the Gwich'in were able to transform what had been and what could have easily been a traditional wilderness battle into something else entirely, a transnational struggle for indigenous rights and environmental justice. And finally, I just wanna close by stressing contingency. I attended Lenny's memorial back in 2014. At the time, uh, Obama was president, the Arctic refuge had been in political dormancy for a while. But I wrote most of the book after the 2016 election. And during that time, Republican leaders were able to get an Arctic drilling provision included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, which was then signed by Trump. And on January 6, 2021, at the very same time that insurrectionists were storming the US Capitol, the first ever lease sale of the Arctic refuge was held. So the refuge is under greater threat than ever before. And I think that makes this history have a, a new urgency and, and relevance for our own time. Um, I hope that the stories that I offer today uh, show uh, the value of a, an importance of grassroots activism, of looking at visual culture from below. Clearly, they don't offer a blueprint to follow today, though. Uh, it's hard to imagine someone loading up a car with slide projectors. But they indicate how a diverse movement has kept this land from becoming another Prudhoe Bay, filled with sprawling spider webs of fossil fuel infrastructure. So in this book, I've tried to offer a history of contingency, a story of things that could have turned out differently, a history forged not only in the hard marble hallways of Capitol Hill, recorded in the pages of the New York Times, but a history that was made by a rambling activist, by Gwich'in spokespeople, by local organizers, a history that we can see was enacted in lecture halls, church basements, public libraries. It's a story of the grassroots taking on Goliath, of a slideshow galvanizing the citizenry, and of unlikely cross-cultural alliances forming across vast distances. Um, I wrote this history during a very urgent time, and I tried to infuse it with the hope that things might still turn out differently. Thank you so much for your attention, and uh, I look forward to your questions and discussion.
Thank you, Finis. This is really fascinating to hear uh, about, and also great to see the the images. I mean, we uh, we often do these book talks without slideshows, but here it's I mean definitely justified. So I thought I'd start by asking a little bit about the images because uh, because you do operate with the iconic and non-iconic uh, distinction here. And I would say in your previous book, The, the Seeing Green, it's very much about these iconic images. So uh, can you say a little bit, about, bit more about what is it that makes an image iconic? I mean, and why would you say that these images, if they've been so important, influential, why have they not become iconic? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh and sort of brings me back to some of the theoretical stuff I would have been reading years ago for, for writing Seeing Green. I think one of the best works on iconic images um, is Robert Harriman and, and John Lewis Lucate's uh, No Caption Needed. Uh, and what they do, they're communication scholars, and they explain how images like uh, Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother and, and others that would be sort of recognizable to just large segments of the United States, which is their main focus, but really around the world, um, how these images, uh, you know, reach a level of mainstream visibility and also are often uh, recur in other media forms later on. So in um, the ways in which they are evoked by editorial cartoonists uh, and other types of ways in which they have these multiple lives through multiple media channels. Um, and it's clearly through um, their ability to to find their way, you know, into a, a very large mainstream audience uh, through, uh, you know, uh, corp often corporate channels of communication, magazines, television, and the like. Uh, and I think that these images take on this meaning within their own time, but perhaps just as importantly for decades later, that they become sort of touchstones or reference points uh, for understanding a particular moment in time uh, and often have some type of political values attached to them. They, they could be very ambiguous uh, in, the, in their meanings and, and open to, to multiple interpretations, though. Uh, these images, um, you know, I, I would say there are a few of them that I, that I showed that have achieved a level of visibility ability uh, that are greater uh, than the ones, particularly the ones from the slideshow. Although even then, um, one of the things you might have noticed, I know I went through this very quickly, but there were, you know, photographs by lots of different uh, photographers in the show. So they curated, they, they, they gathered thousands of slides as they were piecing together the slideshow and winnowed it down to 250, 250, uh, including photographs from uh, Fish and Wildlife Service scientists. Um, some of the ones you saw uh, were taken by them. And those images have had a, a life uh, that I wouldn't quite call iconic, certainly not in the same way of Dorothea Lange, uh, but they, they have shown up in multiple media forums, using posters by environmental groups in magazines, and then having this other life in the slideshow. Um, I was inspired by a lot of the work of people uh, like uh, Greg Mittman and Kelly Wilder edited this book called Documenting the World. Uh, which came out early in the in the project, and I was inspired by their call for scholars to look beyond the icon and to look at non-iconic images, uh, and to try to understand, you know, their their value, their significance, their their impact and agency. Um, and other scholars that I would point to who have done this type of work are like Lee, Lee Rayford, uh, who's written about the civil rights movement. Uh, a wonderful article she did about photography of the of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and how the movement used the camera to represent itself, uh, in many ways as a challenge and a critique of the ways in which uh, the media the move the media was being portrayed, uh, uh, the movement was portraying the media. Um, 
sorry, the other way around, <laughs> how the media was portraying their movement. Um, and then uh, there are also other scholars in environmental history uh, and, and environmental humanities who've, who've looked at non-iconic works, um, Robert Wilson and, and Shirley Roburn and others who've done some really fascinating work uh, thinking about uh, images and how they circulate in these channels that are very different uh, from mainstream corporate media. I, I hope that gets at some of your questions, but that's what kind of drew me to the topic in the first place um, was this idea, and, you know, and honestly, it just seemed kind of quirky, right? This guy going around the country giving a slideshow. Uh, I had no idea how much I would become, you know, obsessed with the story, but also convinced by the surprising impact uh, it had. And that came not just from traditional research in the archives, but from so many of the people that I interviewed uh, explaining to me you know, the ways in which it had that type of, of, of impact on the movement. Yeah, it just shows the impact continues in that it actually also impacted you. So continues this effect. So we have a question from Tina. Hi, can you hear me? Hi, it must be really early out there. I am, yeah, well, no, I'm actually in Alberta. So oh. it's 8.30, it's like, it's late. Um, Finest, terrific, terrific talk, and I'm really looking forward to reading the book, which I haven't quite got to, but I'm going to continue the, um, the uh, conversation that you started with uh, in response to Finarna's question, and I want to ask you about causality, um, and, and really, how do you trace the impact of these images? How do you know these images had the effect that you've you've sort of proposed they do. And secondarily to that, um, can you actually treat the images separate from Lenny and from the relationship to the words? So I'm, I'm asking you the old, is it the, um, is it words? I'm assuming that the, the slideshow was narrated. So there are words and images together and they were delivered by a particular very interesting person. So can you speak to both those things? How do you gauge impact, especially of non-iconic images? How do you know they had the effect that they did, that images mobilize people? And can you actually treat them as free floating? That's to overstate your case. But because I was thinking about Al Gore and his slideshow, Latter-day version, and how personalized that actually was. So that's yeah. my question. These are fantastic questions. I'm going to I'm going to start with the the second one. Um, and just to because uh, I didn't really get to explain this very, very much here. But the um, the show itself, uh, what's it was done with two slide projectors, which they attached to something called a fade dissolve unit so that one uh, slide is fading out from one projector as another one is fading in from the other. So it gets this kind of you get these weird kind of visual mysteries, like it's like one image is superimposed on the other, so you're trying to figure out what's going on. And all of this was cued through the Fade Dissolve unit to a soundtrack. And so the soundtrack had uh, a narrator uh, recorded, uh, as well as music, um, and then interviews uh, that Lenny conducted, um, primarily in Old Crow, Yukon, with Vantat Gwichin. Um, and so it's this 30-minute show that you, it's, almost akin to a documentary film in the sense you have that sense of movement and motion, but also because there is a, a narration sort of built into it. And what was really what's really striking about that is that they put this together in late 1988. 
uh, Reagan is going out, uh, George H.W. Bush was elected. Lenny gave this exact same show for the next 20 years. The last show I could see him giving was in 2008, so at the end of the George W. Bush years. And the, the, it has this strange, like, timeless quality to it. They, they didn't say much in the show about particular dates or historical events. There's a couple things that are referenced in the show. So it's a, it, it, it has, and I've now watched the show with um, in Old Crow Yukon, with, with Funtuk Wichin, with a with number of uh, leaders, environmental indigenous leaders and other activists. And people all sort of say the same thing, that it's surprising, like, how resonant and um, how it has not quite a timeless quality, but it, but it seems to sort of uh, be a little bit decontextualized in a way that allowed it to have the, this longer life and meaning. And even the issues they address, um, to talk about global warming in 1988, uh, you know, Hansen gave his testimony that year, but Bill McKibben's book, End of Nature, comes out in 89. This is not something that's quite achieved the same level of mainstream uh, visibility or recognition. So it put them on the cutting edge of environmental activism, especially because of their uh, and, and Linny's close ties with the Gwich'in, which is something that environmental groups had not talked about uh, or really emphasized in their campaigns, let alone partnered with them uh, until Linny and this little group came along. So words are absolutely essential to the message of the show, not just the 30-minute the show, but also what happens before and after the show. So it usually open with Linny giving his personal story, how he became had this epiphany in the Arctic and became an activist. Uh, and this is very much in keeping with the kind of uh, activist sort of organizing tools that people like Marshall Gans refer to as public narrative. It begins with a story of self, like who am I? How did I come to care about this? And then it moves into a story of us, how it's something that transcends the individual into sort of larger questions. Uh, and finally, a story of now, how do you act? And that there's always this sort of call at the very, after the show is over, uh, to act in, in some way, writing letters and other sorts of actions. But just as importantly is the fact that he uh, almost always would have Gwich'in representatives with him, and they would usually talk after the show. Uh, and so it's them, um, you know, speaking, sharing their, their, their own stories and their own words. And, and all the Gwich'in I interviewed who were involved in this were, you know, adamant that they were not treated as mouthpieces. They were not simply, you know, there to uh, say a certain line uh, that Linny had scripted for them, but they were there to share their own their own stories and perspectives and reasons for being involved in this fight. So words are absolutely uh, essential. Storytelling is absolutely essential, especially because the slideshow moves so quickly through the images, sort of like I did today. Um, to have 250 images go by in half an hour, some of them were timed, so they would stay on screen a little longer than, than others. So a few of them, I would say, you know, the, the creators of the show uh, felt, you know, deemed were more significant. Uh, but, uh, but it's not a, a story of a singular image, you know, floating on its own, having that sort of uh, impact on, on people. To get to your question of impact, um, that's, a, you know, it's obviously really a hard, um, thing to, to prove, or in, and I don't try to do so in any kind of uh, definitive or, or quantitative way. What I try to do uh, in telling the story and letting it unfold is to sort of sprinkle enough evidence throughout the, the, the book that you're left with the sense that, that certainly this had a, a surprising impact and maybe could have been 
uh, absolutely key, uh, especially in terms of the outcome of, of certain votes. The way I was able, though, to try to, to gather that evidence and to, to put that in, weave that into the story to give you with that, hopefully to leave you with that sense of its significance, um, is partly through the interviews I did. I did over 50 interviews, uh, many of them with, with Wichin leaders who worked with Lenny, many of them with uh, environmental staffers in DC as well as grassroots activists, including people who came to the show uh, and became activists because of their experience. Some of them, their whole lives were changed, like their whole career paths and trajectories of their lives were changed after seeing the show. Um, so their stories, to, to me, the fact that there were so many people telling me, you know, in various ways, how important the show was in terms of votes, uh, but also in terms of building uh, relationships, building a larger movement, uh, in, in terms of Gwich'in being involved with it, in some cases, it changed their lives as well. Uh, Joe Tetlici, who's been the uh, chair of the Porcupine Caribou Management Board uh, for over 20 years now, uh, he got involved uh, as a leader uh, after being uh, going on the road with Linny. And he was really insistent in our interview that I, that I understand how much the show impacted Gwich'in. Uh, as well as how much it impacted people, you know, in the lower 48. Um, and then the other thing I look at throughout the, the book is um, newspaper coverage of tours um, and not New York Times, and Lenny was never mentioned in the New York Times, uh, uh, but instead smaller market local papers, you know, so Carbondale, Illinois is a one community that sort of profiled throughout the book, but there are many others um, places that he visited um, multiple times over the years where there would be stories written about the show. You can also see letters to the editor coming uh, after the shows uh, and sort of other ways in which, you know, citizens were, were uh, expressing their, their, their concern about this issue. Um, and I'm able to, um, again, not in sort of, an, you know, definitively prove this slideshow is what made all the difference, but I'm able to show um, how the, in targeting certain congressional districts and states, they were able to, you know, amplify this, this issue, uh, increase citizen involvement in it. And, uh, and in some cases, you have members of Congress actually saying, you know, it's because of the grassroots, it's because of um, citizen involvement that more and more of us are choosing to vote against drilling uh, in these key votes. Al Gore, since you mentioned him, he, he, um, he, would, he would have been anti-drilling to begin with, but he noted that after a key vote in 1991 uh, in a press conference, he said it was the grassroots that really turned this around, that it was citizen involvement uh, that changed the minds of, of people who were on the fence uh, on this issue. So uh, that's that's the way I, I deal with this question, both of these questions, uh, or try to deal with these questions that you asked that I think are absolutely you know, central to talking about visual culture and the environment, and also trying to assess uh, questions of impact of images and social movement. So thank you, Tina, for raising this. Well, I was thinking about the that while there's no one given image that becomes iconic in it, there are some iconic things in that you have the caribou. And so I'm thinking about the caribou as a species and as a symbol then. So it's used, I noticed in the title slide of that, you know, the, the last great wilderness. Um, it's used, of course, you used it on your cover of the book um, is a caribou um group and and so i was wondering about that and of course the caribou then become so central in the conversation um about the Gwich'in because i noticed in your map right so that the Gwich'in areas don't include the calving area 
is not within the Gwich'in. So, and yet it's completely central um, to, you know, their relationship to caribou. And yet it's not where they are. So there's there's a really interesting, I think, dynamic there um, with the caribou. So I was wondering how the caribou functions then as an icon in the slideshow, in the presentation, in the discussions um, about the, um, the national refuge. Yeah, um, that, that's a great question as well. So um, it comes up very early, uh, the discussions of caribou, but even before the refuge is set aside as this protected area. And, uh, and those who are pushing for it at first, going back to the 1950s, uh, these are you know traditional uh, white settler conservationists who are invoking a language of frontier uh, and, uh, you know, sort of disregarding indigenous history and experience and are talking about the caribou, not because of their connection to indigenous communities, but as a symbol of, uh, you know, what we might call a charismatic megafauna today, but in terms of their uh, roaming these vast lands and evoking an idea uh, again, within a, a settler colonial sort of ideology and, and mythology of the 19th century frontier, uh, and in particularly the buffalo. And so there's all kinds of references made to, you know, in the past, there were all these buffalo on the plains, you know, herds and herds of them that, you, you know, uh, that were, uh, you know, sort of massive and awe-inspiring, and, uh, you know, those uh, met their end. And in Alaska, uh, as well as the transboundary region, you still have that. And so this is a way, uh, these conservationists argued, to preserve the kind of original pioneer frontier uh, through uh, this herd, uh, this massive herd of caribou. Um, later, uh, people like Lenny Combe learning from the Gwich'in began to see how this was, you know, not simply something that should be cast in uh, a traditional uh, wilderness framework for or, or using the sort of the problematic language of the frontier, but instead as seeing it a question of, of cultural survival, of food security, uh, of a fight against cultural genocide. And so it, it takes on these multiple meanings that, that shift uh, over time. Um, depending on who is, is talking about the caribou uh, and the ways they do it. I think there was a second part to your, to your question, and, I, and now I've, I've sort of lost. I know it began with caribou, and I think you ended up somewhere else. And now I, Yeah, well, I mean, I was just thinking about caribou and their yeah, iconic status um, in, in the entire, not only the visual, but then the debate um, about, the, about oil drilling and the ways in which there's a tension then of using the caribou in this fashion. Um, oh. I mean, I kind of think about it and, and maybe this, you know, you can relate to this as well is, you know, the way the polar bear is used to talk about, um, you know, global warming and, you know, climate change. And so there's this polar bear on a little ice flow. So while there's not I would say not one particular image of polar bear. It certainly is an iconic image of polar bear in my mind. Um, you know, polar bear on little piece of ice in middle of sea. Um, yeah, and the, I'm glad you mentioned polar bear because really quickly I, I would say that the polar bear image I showed, which was taken by Shubankar Banerjee, is the one image out of all of these that you you that you might call iconic, or at least um, the way in which that image is circulated through all kinds of media over the years. Um, but now I'm, I'm remembering a, a second part of your question, which I'll get to, but one more thing about the caribou and the ways in which they are portrayed visually that I think is really uh, important uh, is that in some cases you have these aerial views um, uh, of large you know, populations moving through the land. And um, 
I, I, we often look at aerial views as uh, in, inherently alienating people from nature. They're seen as as a product of military technology, you know, sort of imperial worldview. Um, and I think Tina Liu uh, uh, offered a really great, uh, you know, analysis and critique of that sort of easy uh, move towards seeing them as only having that meaning. Uh, in an article she did about James Scott's uh, scene like a state and, and how in which aerial views can also uh, encourage non-anthropocentric understandings of nature. And I think that's part of what's going on in some of those, that there is a sublime there, but it's not a sublime of, of vast mountains or towering waterfalls, but it's a, a mathematical sublime that comes from seeing these huge populations of animals and thinking in many cases of a, of a more than human world. But also, uh, there's so many different ways to portray caribou, not just from the air, but on the ground. Uh, so being caribou, the documentary film that I briefly mentioned, is, is also really uh, a crucial text for all kinds of reasons, including the, the closeness they have to the caribou uh, and revealing the struggles of these animals uh, through their long migrations, uh, through the, the attacks they endure by insects, uh, through the conditions that they are. Uh, moving through land in order to reproduce and sustain their populations. The other point made really quickly was also just about the, the Gwich'in uh, and the area of the coastal plain. Um, and so this gets to a whole other question that comes up in the book, which is the media often frame this debate as native versus native. You'll see this even today. Uh, you will hear see stories that the Gwich'in are portrayed as anti-drilling and that the Inupiat especially in Kaktovik, uh, which is along the coastal plain, are pro-drilling. Uh, there is uh, a measure of truth to this in that, that there are Inupiat in Kaktovik who are pro-drilling, but it is framed in very monolithic terms and it ignores a longer history of uh, the impact of native corporations uh, and issues of sovereignty uh, that have uh, played themselves out in very complicated ways. Um, but I can talk more about that if people want, but I see there's another question uh, from Jess, I think. Yeah, so we just uh, unmute Jess here. Good morning or good afternoon, I guess, depending on where you are. I'm in my pajamas still having coffee. Um, Finest, I, I already told you uh, by email that I love this book and it was a total pleasure to read while we were paddling this summer. Um, appropriately in an indigenous protected area established here in the Northwest Territories in part to, to take care of caribou, but also to sustain, as you say, those responsibilities of indigenous peoples to their land. Um, my question is, is uh, sort of about where you think you're headed next, because I thought it was really interesting how you uh, talked about um, the way in which you wanted to write this book was different in the way that you wrote your other book and that this was an introduction to microhistory for you, I think was in the title or the description. And so I was sort of curious to know, you know, has this changed you as a historian and what interests you um, both, I guess, topically, but also in terms of how you um, approach your work and if you have a sense of where you're headed next. I'm also giving you that question as a gift because sometimes we get really tired of talking about the thing that we just published. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so thank you for the question and, and for your, your kind, uh, generous feedback about the book. Um, yeah, it's actually, to be honest, it's a very difficult question to answer. I, I have no, absolutely no idea, um, it, it's, which is um, very different from, from where I was several years ago. Um, like. 
I, I was so tired of uh, seeing green by the, before it came out, by the time I sent the final draft to the publisher, that I was you know, keen to do something different. I think I was also becoming tired of the type of writing that I was doing and the, um, the sort of I don't want to sound too negative toward, you know, sort of critique uh, as an academic practice, but I felt that um, I was looking to to write history a bit differently and not just the sort of easy recourse toward critique, which I could have easily done, you know, thinking about the last great wilderness. That is like a perfect target for a cultural studies critique of the wilderness ideal. Uh, and I, I guess I allowed myself in this case to be open to other possibilities and other meanings uh, that that surprise me. Um, and what what I'm trying to get to is when I finished that book, finished the final draft, I was already starting to, you know, wanting to, to do something new and different and, and researching and reading about this and, you know, went to Lenny's memorial several months before the, the book actually came out. Uh, I'm not in that position at all right now. And that could be for all kinds of reasons, you know, related to the pandemic and, and other things in everyone's lives now. Um, but I do think it's also because of um, you know, I think what you're 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 suggesting there that I think doing this has changed me in 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 ways that I probably can't really articulate very well. Uh, I'm not at this point ready to sort of give up this topic. It's possible that's because the, it's so much uh, going on as an ongoing political concern. It's also because of the relationships that that I built uh, along the way uh, from from researching and writing this book. Um, you know, oddly, there were moments where the past and the present were really blurring for me um, so that people that Lenny was closest to in his life were people that I was interviewing and in some cases collaborating with Norma, Norma Cassie being one of the most important um, Shubankar Banerjee and a few other people that uh, have been involved in this history were people that I was starting to get to know and work with in other ways. And because the issue is still uh, ongoing, it's uncertain what is going to eventually happen to that land. And because of the, these relationships that I've built with people, I, I, I kind of don't want to let those go. And um, so I, I think I'm at the point where I don't really know uh, what, what, I, what I plan to be do, do next. Um, uh, and, and if I hazard any type of um, speculation, I, I'm sure it would be proven wrong very quickly. Um, so I, I think I'll refrain from doing that. But, but I think that ultimately this book did change me um, in the sense of, you know, really asking those kind of larger questions like why why are we doing this you know why, why write history um and that's partly because of the fact that the history that i was writing was becoming uh something that was so you know contested and concerned uh at, at that at, during those moments like i was following the votes in congress i was talking with people in the north and in dc and elsewhere uh, about the votes coming up uh and so i think that that I'll just share one quick story, I think that really kind of illustrates this for, for me anyway. It was in the fall of 2017 when the vote was coming up soon for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I felt that this was an issue that was getting hardly any attention in the in the in the media in a way that it in the way that it did years before, especially during the W years. This was so such a high-profile media question. I think everything that was happening in 2017 with the Trump administration uh, that was so you know egregious and troubling on so many on a range of issues pushed this particular topic, I think, to the margins uh, of a lot of media coverage. And I was feeling powerless. Like I was like, well, you know, this is going to happen. And what can I do about it? Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to load up a car and drive around the country giving a slideshow. And so I reached out to different people, um, including Nor Norma Cassie, Bunta Wichin leader. 
And I remember talking with her late on a Saturday night for a really long time. And, and it was, I was like, well, what, what should I do? How can I, how can I make a difference? And, and, and for her, it was sort of like, well, obviously it wasn't even a question that I should do something. It was like, I had to do something. It was my responsibility to do something because I had visited their community. I had talked with people. Uh, and for her, it was like, well, here's what we can, and we ended up writing op-ed together. You know, it's a very small, modest gesture, but it, it really sort of changed my sense of why I was writing history. Uh, and ultimately, I guess I'll just add one more thing, which is that, you know, th this project turned into other types of uh, relationship building and surprises along the way. Like when I presented the show in Old Crow and people in the audience uh, said, well, what happened to all of Lenny's other slides? He took all kinds of pictures that aren't in the slideshow. Many of our community, we've never seen them again. And so there's a story, as you know, in the book of, of returning um, to North Carolina to eventually get all of his slides from uh, Vuntuk Witchin lands and to have them uh, digitized. Uh, and return to the community and so that they could use them uh, for various sort of projects. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a long-winded answer that actually is not an answer at all, uh, but hopefully it reflects, you know, how this has sort of gotten, you know, I guess inside of me and, and changed me and, and left me with uh, maybe not a, a clear sense of, of what comes next. Um, so I apologize for the rambling answer and for the, the lack of an answer at the same time, but, but I'm grateful for the question. Yeah, it may not have been like an actual answer, but I think there were wonderful reflections which we've gotten a lot of through uh, through this book talk. Uh, it's been really fascinating uh, to hear. So also, while you may not have a clear next project lined up, I mean, there's also a, a big freedom in that, I think, uh, you know, to not be just in the pipeline for the next project immediately. Mm -hmm. um, so Well, to, to let it be like... <laughs> Um, you know, your your discovery of Lenny's, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, is in being being in the moment, I guess, yep. you know, and, and, let, and leaving yourself open to that. So, yep. so, um, so we thank you very much. Looking forward to seeing uh, what comes next. So thank you also then for to everyone for coming to this talk then with Finest Dunaway uh, on his book, Defending the Arctic Refuge. So thank you all. Well, and thank you all for joining. Uh, for, for me, uh, writing this book was a gift, and it's a gift to have people who are interested in it today. So, so thank you all for being here.